Folks, it's absolutely October time, and we all know what that means. We need to get our costumes ready for the night we're allowed to go door-to-door picking up the Butterfingers. Well, instead of spending a whole day trying on sexy Ken Bone costumes in store, why not go to CostumesForLess.com? CostumesForLess.com is a leading online retailer of Halloween costumes and accessories, drama and theme party costumes, lingerie and sexy wear, shoes and party and wedding supplies that's right they absolutely have shoes if you're looking for converses nikes adidas go to costumesforless.com their mission is to offer you the most pleasant online shopping experience by providing the widest selection of products at the best possible prices via our easy to use full featured and secure website that's right it's secure it's no equal facts let's just say that you're not going to get your information stolen by an absolute ghoul Get your Halloween costume today and get free shipping on your order by going to BoardWalkAudio.com slash costumes. That's BoardWalkAudio.com slash costumes. This is a BoardWalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson, and I'm a little bit sick during this intro, but I wasn't sick during the interview, so my voice isn't going to sound like this. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and I get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Laura Wilcox, who you know from performing at the UCB Theater on both coasts a great ECB comedy web series called Trying, her satirical wedding planning book, I Am Bride, and writing on the new Jim Jeffries show on Comedy Central. If you like this episode, I recommend checking out the ones we did with Nate Dern, who has a book out called Not Quite a Genius, or any of our late-night episodes like the ones with Jack Allison and Jeff Loveness from Jimmy Kimmel Live. So here is Laura Wilcox. Uh, Laura, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, which is kind of like a suburb of New York City, basically. Yeah. Not, not too far outside they the city. They have the Montclair Film Festival. They do, which is like a new thing. Montclair's gotten way hipper since I lived there, so, you know. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> were you uh, uh, into comedy when you were growing up? Yeah, I've always loved comedy... I was just, like, basically being able to make people laugh was, like, the first thing I liked about myself. (laughs) (laughs) I always think it for everyone, I'd say for, like, 99% of the people I know that do comedy, it started as a defense mechanism um, that then we tried to turn into a career, and so I'm sure that there's something deeply unhealthy about that, Um, (laughs) and I'm no different. But, yeah, I've always liked doing theater, and I'd always be drawn to, like, the comedic roles, um... And yeah, and then you know, like all throughout uh, middle school and high school and college, I did theater and like some musical theater. And but then I um, got very into sketch comedy in college, and that's where I was like, oh yeah, this is I can just do the funny stuff and don't have to do this whole play. Like, <laughs> what uh, what theater roles were you playing? Oh God, I was Madame. Madame Thenardier in Les Mis, which is, she's like the master of the house. Okay. Like Helena Bonham Carter role, I Mm. think, in the movie. The wonderful movie. Um, God, what else did we do? We did Godspell. um, And I was just like, that was a weird show. 
Um, and then a lot of like kind of obscure plays in college that I had never heard of before. <laughs> like oh, yeah. I actually did them. Um, like Big Love and um, The Wild Party. Oh, I know The Wild Party. Yeah, I was like the lesbian character who's yeah. definitely a very offensive character in retrospect. <laughs> she's like a lecherous lesbian hitting on an underage woman at a party. Oh, um, wow. But she's that. like the quote-unquote comedic relief of this otherwise like very overly dramatic musical. Right. Um, but in retrospect, it's like a very offensive character. So I played her, uh, which was great. Uh, big shining star in my resume. Uh, yeah, but... Yeah, my focus shifted more to, like, sketch, and then once I graduated, I started, I moved back to New York and um, got involved in UCB and, like, um, did a lot of improv. That's my real Uh, love. Where did you uh, go to college? I went to Tufts University. Okay. I just found out Anthony Scaramucci also went to Tufts. Oh, really? Yeah, so I hope he's really, like, tapping into that alumni career network right now. Yeah, he needs it. He yeah. really needs it. Is, was a, a Scaramucci type the person that go to Tufts? Not really. I was actually kind of surprised. He seems more like a Lehigh guy or my like a frat. Yeah, my husband yeah. went to Lehigh, so I feel like I can oh. make fun of it. Um, I was a little surprised to yeah, because I feel like Tufts is a lot of like there's a lot of like nerds and there's a lot of um ivy league rejects like a bunch of kids who feel like they should have gotten into ivy league but just weren't quite special enough to get in um but so still a lot of like great smart people but like just not quite ivy league material which i felt like those were my people so uh when did you discover the sketch comedy team or group they, I think freshman year, I found out about them, and they'd actually just formed. It was, like, formed by people just one grade above mine, so it was still a pretty new thing. So it kind of helped shape it and form it, which was really fun. Um, and there was there was an improv team, like a short-form improv team, but I was terrified of doing improv. Uh, so I did not audition but was friends with a lot of people on it and loved watching it, even short-form. I didn't know any better. Um <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it wasn't until I graduated that I finally, like, you know, got the guts to go out. And I took a class at UCB and really fell in love with it. So when you were doing sketch, was were, like, did some people know UCB, like, through the night group? I remember, yes, some people... I remember, like, hearing about UCB and also, like, sh- that Chicago was all, another big hub of, like, you know, like, Second City and I.O. That's where I, like, had friends who were talking about those places as like these comedy meccas. So remember when, I, when graduation was coming up and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, I was like, well, kind of contemplating either Chicago or New York um, and figured I'd be taking classes there. And I just settled on New York because honestly, that's like basically where I'm from. So it was the easier choice for me. Um, yeah. And so when, when you when you went to New York, you went for the like explicit purpose of uh, doing UCB? Well, I at the time I did not think I would pursue a career in like as like a writer actor at all um i that was like way too impractical for me i i always thought i was pursuing sort of like um i had several internships um at production companies sort of in a produce like as a producer and i got a job as like a an assistant to a director producer and you know became like an associate producer and so I thought I would, you know, work in the more like sort of practical logistical side of things because I could just 
that just felt safer to me. Um, but on the side, I could just, you know, if I could just perform at UCB and have comedy always just be the side thing I do for fun, I thought I'd be perfectly happy. And I learned very quickly that, like, no, I really fucking hated producing. I hated being the person. I hated, it really sucks to work in a career that's like, like 10 like just side by side to the career you actually want yeah, where I'm like, yeah. you know, producing the writers and actors instead of, uh, and, you know, scheduling shoots instead of, um, or, and, you know, ordering lunches instead of actually getting to like do the writing or acting or actually be in a past. So it, it took me a while to admit to myself that this is what I actually wanted to do like for a living. Cause it was just very impractical and felt really like a not safe choice. But, uh, it got to a point where I was so miserable at my job that, I was like, I think I'd rather take the chance than be stuck doing a job that makes me really unhappy. So it, it seems like a lot of people who do UCB, especially like in New York, I feel like more than LA, yeah, uh, do it like as like a side thing at first. Yes. Well, like, in, I feel like nowadays, at least in LA, everyone like is very much knowledgeable of everything yeah. going in. Yeah, I feel like if you've moved out here, you've made the choice, like, I am pursuing this for real. Yeah. There, in New York, it's like a lot, it's either NYU students who have made the choice and they're like 18 years old and they're like, no, I want to do this. And, you know, there are all the people who get hired for SNL at like age 25 and you're like, damn it. <laughs> um, but then there's a lot of other people who I, I think are kind of like me who like graduate, find their way to New York and then you know, slowly come to a realization of like, oh, maybe I'm good at this. I love this clearly. And like, oh, maybe I could like make a living doing this, yeah. you know? Um, and, you know, I question whether that was a smart choice almost every day, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who are your teachers at UCB? I had my, f- Eric Tenoy, I had uh, Kevin Hines, Gavin Spieler, Porter Mason, who I don't think does stuff there anymore. Chris Gethard, uh, Shannon O'Neill, I had all of them at various different times. And was there yeah. any moments like in class when you're like, oh, this is like clicking with me and now I like, I get it. Yeah, I think, honestly, I feel like it was, it was less in class and it was when I started performing, I formed an indie team, um, with, some friends of mine that I met in class. Um, and actually one of those people was Lauren Lapkus, who was, she just moved to, she was like a star of the improv scene in Chicago. I just moved to New York, had to take all the classes at UCB so she could eventually perform there. And I met her in my 401 and she was so much better than everybody else because <laughs> she's naturally very funny and also had a lot of experience at that point. And because, because she had no friends in uh, New York, luckily for us, so we invited her to join our like indie team. We're all like brand new improvisers, and and she joined. But we became friends, and actually, I I really feel like it was like playing with her and everyone on that team made and and having to perform regularly in front of an audience is where it started to click. Because I would kind of just like mimic. I felt like the other people on the team were better than me, and I would just sort of like. I kind of realized like, oh, they all seem very comfortable and confident on stage and I feel terrified. And, <laughs> but if I just mimic their confidence, like at least it, I can maybe trick people into think I, thinking I know what I'm doing. And then also I think it's like that fake it till you make it thing where if I pretend I'm really confident and comfortable up here, it'll eventually be true. Like, yeah. And I, I think, so I think just performing a lot in front of audience and getting up and bombing, having horrible shows, <laughs> uh, over and over again and realizing like 
well, it's fine. The world is still turning. And then also sometimes having really great shows where everything, you know, everything just clicks and it's like, you're not thinking too hard and you're just following your instincts and having those few like shining moments where I was like, Oh, you're like chasing that high of like a really good show. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like a drug. (laughs) So I, yeah, I felt like performing is what really made it click. Flip that pass. Wow. Biplane. That's a loud one. That's a big, that's a low flyer. I think it's uh it's the helicopters because mm. uh, KTLA is right there. Oh, that's fair. I never noticed it except when I'm recording a podcast and then I'm acutely aware of it. But it's <laughs> um, interesting that you said that performance. I guess this is more of an improv question. Yeah. But, uh, there's like a big debate in improv when you should start performing. I guess especially because hmm. like well at least that's what I found. Yeah. Uh, I guess because the indie scene here is so, like, oversaturated, I guess. Right. So, I guess you you stand firmly on, like, start performing as soon as possible? Yeah, I don't think you're really going to get better if you're... I think there's only so far you can go if you're just... I think, like, rehearsing a lot is also crucial to getting better. Um, I think that that's really important. But um, I personally think the only way you can... I mean, that's like, you know, you see people in the world of stand-up. Like, they're not just doing stand-up jokes to each other alone in a room. I mean, that's what open mics are, but you're performing and you're performing. It's performing in front of an audience. I mean, I don't know, maybe improv should adopt a sort of like open mic style for new improvisers and stuff, but which is kind of what I always thought the indie scene was. It Mm. just sort of felt like open mics where it's a lot of like teams, it's young (laughs) improvisers. I mean, there, I think there's some shows that become more established and maybe that's where the more experienced teams can perform. And I don't know. I think that that's silly. I think that's just people not wanting to sit through a bad improv show. <laughs> I think that's just people like, I don't want to watch bad improv for 10 minutes at my indie show. Right. I don't know. I, I think, I think there's no such thing as too soon to perform. Interesting. Uh, so you did a bunch of improv. Yeah. Uh, did you ever do any sketch? I did. I was on a mod team, um, uh, just as an actor though not as a writer um which was really fun and i had a great uh, great team that like clicked really well um and we uh which was very very lucky it doesn't always work out that way um but yeah i just i only submitted as an actor i was like i feel like it, at first i was focusing more on the acting side of things and it took me a little while longer to get more into the to kind of realize like oh i I really like writing. I like the control it gives me. Um, and yeah, kind of that was that kind of came second. On mod as an actor, would you like um, when you're doing meetings, would you kind of pitch like characters that you could do? Yeah, yeah. The, the writers were very involved in the pitching process and especially like shaping of characters or you know, pitching sketch ideas. And ultimately it's up to the writers to decide, you know, what ideas are interesting to them because they have to go write it. Uh, But it felt like a very collaborative process. It didn't feel like, you know, the writers only write and the actors only act and that's it. It felt like a real, you know, like when a show would come together, it felt like we had all really shaped it together, which was really nice. Uh, How much do do you use improv in your writing? I feel like... Like, I never actually took a single sketch writing class at at UCB or anything. And I feel like learning how to improvise is what taught me how to write. Um, and, I've, and I feel like when I, when I get into a flow where I'm writing or pitching ideas or sitting in a writer's room brainstorming ideas, I'm getting into the same mental headspace that I get into when I'm improvising. Um, 
Yeah, just realizing, like, oh, I can come up with, like, premise and character point of view and jokes. I can... I can think of those things on stage on my feet, so I bet I can do that in like front of a computer screen. Um, yeah, I feel like it it was crucial to me learning how to write. And it seems especially uh, important in a room. Yeah. When you're kind of uh, kind of spitballing stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it really is. It's flexing a very similar muscle mm-hmm. of just also, it's you know like the sitting down and like writing that first draft is you know, like staring at that blank page, it's, uh, it's the worst feeling in the world where you're like, Oh God, I'm at the bottom of the hill. And (laughs) so knowing I like knowing I can like get on stage and just, it'll come to me if I just kind of like dive off and just start. I feel like sometimes that that'll help me get started writing where I'm like, well, I know I can, I sometimes need to just sort of like get in that flow where I can just let the ideas come to me and not like think too hard on it. And, most of the time it'll be crap, but there'll be some seed of a funny idea there that I can use. And, um, so yeah, for, for me, improv and writing go very much hand in hand. Uh, you were a writer on a girl's code. Yes. I did some, some sort of like brainstorming consulting as they call it, which is really just, they hire you as a writer, but you don't get paid as a writer. No, yeah, yeah. So, um, but that was really fun actually because that the, there was they kind of brought people in in shifts. So, and would like cycle through a bunch of different comedians, and you know, it was an all female room for the most part, and that was really fun. So it was just a lot of like brainstorming ideas, writing some sketches and stuff like that. Um, so, what, would you be writing for just like general premises, or would you be writing like for the comedians on the show? We a little bit of both. A lot of what we would do was sort of brainstorm on like the topics that they would talk about and what each like sort of the beats of each act of the episode and sort of what they would cover and sort of the point i mean the comedians really they do bring their own points of view and talking heads aren't like written that's that's them really responding with their own stuff because they're all comedians in their own right um but it was really just shaping sort of like okay we're going to talk about first day of school and what that means you know picking out your outfit like just sort of nailing down the topics um and then we would come up with sketch ideas that because they would do like sort of little interstitial sketches and we would usually just kind of do like a first draft of those and then hand them off and and they would kind of punch those up when you're writing uh for a show that has kind of like a younger uh female audience yeah are you like very aware of like with the messages and what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. You want to you want it to be like socially responsible, of course, and you don't want to be, which which I think that show is for the most part because everyone on it used to be a 14 year old girl, um, and so they're. I feel like everyone working on that show, and I didn't work on it that much, but like. I feel like the appeal is everyone's like, it's almost like they're speaking to their former selves. Like I wish someone had told me this when I was 14. So I think that there's a lot, I think that that's in the forefront of everyone's mind when making a show like that. I remember I worked on another show for MTV that was basically a very similar, it was called Hey Girl that was like greenlit at the same time as Girl Code, but it just died because Girl Code was this huge hit. So they were like, why do we need two of the same show? Um, But I remember hearing that in a, they had a sketch or a joke about, um, a joke about wanting Justin Timberlake to get back into music. Um, and in the focus groups with 14 year old girls, it didn't test well. Cause they were like, why would 
I don't get the joke. Why are they suggesting that the actor Justin Timberlake should get into music? It's like they didn't know about NSYNC. They just knew him from like SNL or something like that. I don't know. We were just like, oh, wow, okay, I'm a thousand years old and I can't relate to our audience at all. Yeah. That's crazy. That's weird. Yeah. It's weird. Um, And you've also done like a lot of uh, online stuff for like Above Average. Yeah. How'd you get into that? I think... I basically I it everyone that was working there was actually it it wound up that almost everyone that got staffed as a writer there because they started hiring people full time as writers and video producers they were all people that used to be on my mod team uh-huh. like a, like almost all of my mod team got hired by them at some point so I, it just was people that I had known from the UCB community um, so I would get like cast and stuff that way so I've written a bunch of like branded content stuff for them over the years and yeah I think it was really just. Uh, knowing knowing people through the UCB community. When you're doing like something like branded content, uh, what's your like focus on that? Like rather, like what is it different than just doing a regular oh, yeah. sketch? Yeah, because yeah. it's 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 not allowed to be funny. So it's <laughs> branded content's tough. It's because it pays really well. Um, I imagine yeah, it pays really well uh, compared to like other sketch videos on the internet anyway. Um, but you know you're you're getting notes on your script from, you know, like a, a, a brand and an advertising company. And, and they're all about, you know, their objective is they have to like protect the brand and right. they have this very specific message and image that's been focus grouped. And, you know, we're appealing to moms between the ages <laughs> of 30 and 32 and they want this and that. So we need to make sure we hit this brand point and this and we can't say this and we have to say that but also make it funny so it's hard it's not mm-hmm. it's never um like whenever i see like a really truly funny piece of branded content i'm like damn that's <laughs> harder than climbing mount everest like hats off to you <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it's tough it's definitely tough so, so what advice would you give to somebody writing a branded content video <laughs> I mean, try to make it as funny as possible and then just suck it up when you get notes that you don't like. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's not this. You can't make it your baby. This isn't going to be your your big funny writing sample. Um, it's it's like just I you know, at the end of the day, I was always just happy that I'm getting paid to write, even if it's not like my dream writing job. I'd rather be doing that than one of the 10,000 other things I could be doing to earn a living. So, you know, you just have to. I think you have to just swallow your pride a little bit is my, I mean, that might be terrible advice. Maybe I'm a total sellout, but you know, <laughs> I like being able to pay rent. So, <laughs> uh, you wrote on, uh, Alec Baldwin's love ride. Oh yes. What, what was the, what was that show? So that, this was actually, this is Alec Baldwin's brainchild. He is a, he is a hustler. Um, he, <laughs> he pitched this web series was like, a. It's the premise is a a couple, a real couple who knows they're going to be on some sort of reality show, but they don't know what climbs into the backseat of a cab thinking they're going to be driven to some location. And Alec Baldwin is sitting in the cab and he's internationally renowned love expert, Alec Baldwin, who's there to give them relationship advice. And they just kind of drive around. He gets them to, you know, he's very good at talking to people and getting people to open up and just share the most intimate details of their relationship with him. And he gives them advice and that's basically it. And we like play games and stuff. So for that writing was like coming up with games and questions to ask them, which 
he may or may not use. And then we're, we're in a follow van and he's got a little thing in his ear and we're like screaming jokes into his ear to say. And, um, so that was a very, it's mostly on the fly writing. Wow. Like there was a lot of prep that goes into it that yeah. then all gets thrown out the window and then you're just like screaming things in his ear to say. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, it was pretty fun. And yeah. it was like, it's a very, uh, it was, yeah, it was a very kind of fun, weird, thing to work on would you ever like uh give advice like we ever like tell them like some advice to give yeah i mean we would also strong form like strong opinions where we'd be like he's terrible and she's wonderful and you know but he, we they would never go that far in the questioning where he'd be like you're a piece of shit get out of the car <laughs> um they wouldn't go that far but yeah we would try to give advice to be like you know tell him tell him he needs to apologize about that or take her hand you know whether or not he actually listens to us when you were, did you find there were certain jokes that Alec Baldwin would use more than others? He loved to shit on Russell Crowe. That was a running gag. Was wow. he? He, okay. he really loved to shit on Russell Crowe. Did not expect you to say that. I know that was like a thing he just enjoyed doing. Um, <laughs> was he'd have everyone play basically fuck Mary kill, but he would call it boff Mary kill, and he would always be like Alec Baldwin, you know, someone else. Oh, Russell Crowe. And he would always set it up in a way where he's like, I want you to say you'd kill Russell Crowe. And everyone almost would be like, yeah, I guess I'd kill Russell Crowe. Like, it was just very clear that that was what, how they were supposed to answer. Right. Yeah, I don't know if there's a rivalry there or maybe they're best friends and it's all in good fun. I have no idea, but like that came up a lot. You'll see it in the episodes. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I don't know if there's a recurring joke necessarily. But it was just like games. It was just like a fun thing to do. Uh, and you also wrote on the Go ninety series algorithm. Yes. What was that like? That was fun. That was that was a um, a YouTube a YouTuber Wheezy Waiter um, had written a short film that was um, so we basically were like adapting that into longer form. Like I think it was six episode web series. Um, and so that was, that was a small room. It was just me and two other guys, Travis Helwig and, um, Drew Johnson, um, who are both very, Drew's right now on the Gethard show. And Travis, uh, is I think the head writer at Adam ruins everything now. Um, and so, yeah, it was the three of us just sort of like beating it out, breaking out the story, figuring out what these, you know, what the arc would be and kind of just divvying up the episodes and going from there. So it was a very, it was like a little micro writer's room. Yeah, and, and that was kind of your first like narrative experience. Yeah, that was one of the first ones, I think. Yeah, I think it was. There was that, and, and around that same time, I wrote for another Go90 series called Animal Agent. That was a similar thing, or it was like, but then, but weirdly, it was, they ordered like 32 short episodes, um, which was, or no, 24 episodes, but they were all supposed to be two to four minutes each. So that was crazy. Was trying to like yeah. map out the arc of 24 short episodes. And so we tried to break it down into like seasons just in our mind. That was, that was a very different landscape to navigate. Cause we were like, we need, this needs to have like basically three season arcs within it. Otherwise just what are we going to do for yeah. 24 episodes? Um, so yeah, those were two kind of early scripted narrative experiences. They were both like very small little rooms, but, um, but really fun. When you're writing like, uh, online kind of narrative stuff, like mm -hmm. what are, are you like taking into account? Like, Oh, this episode will come out now and then there won't be one for a week or is that, is that true or they all come at the same time 
I guess we're not really thinking about that too much. I think most of them, they would space them out over weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you have to, if if your show is something that can be just binge watched back to back. I think the other thing with web stuff, especially for some, with most web stuff, you're like, so we're going to construct an arc because that's just what you do and we need it. Otherwise, you know, that's that's just these stories all lend themselves to that. But we also need to take into account that someone might watch episode seven and then episode one and then episode 20 because it's the internet and people will do whatever that they want. Um, So they need to be universal enough that someone could just pick up anywhere and watch an episode and not be completely lost. Um, So you do have to take that into account, which can be a little tricky. Like each episode needs to stand alone, but also, you know, follow this arc. So that's a little tricky. Hmm. And then it needs to be really short. (laughs) But have the characters be fully developed and have, like, (laughs) relationships, like, ebb and flow. And, yeah, it's tough. It's definitely tough to keep things short. And, Uh, yeah. You also co-created Raven Star in your web series. Yeah. uh, Trying. Yep. For UCB. Yeah. Uh, How did that uh, start? Um, So that's something I I co-created with my now husband, Don Finelli, who's a fellow writer, actor, um, who I met. Actually, we were on our first Herald team together. Oh, you wow. see, it's a true UCB love story. It's <laughs> disgusting. Um, it was an idea. I mean, really, it spawned out of... It was based really on our own relationship, um, as narcissistic as that is. Um, when we first started dating, we were almost like surprised that we were dating each other because we were kind of on the outside anyway, very total opposites. Mm. Um, I'm sort of like the nerdy theater girl. And he was like, like I said, a former frat boy from Lehigh. Like we, if we had met <laughs> maybe five years earlier in college, we would never have dated one another. Oh, we would have been like repulsed by one another. So it was, it was the original seed was this idea of like a couple. I just sort of had this idea of like an episode, like a web episode of these two people introducing each other to their friends from college um, based, which is what it was, you know, and just how it's like introducing, it's just like entering these two new worlds. So like when Don met all my like hippie-ish like theater friends and we played like parlor games and got high and he was just like, what the fuck is going on? And then I met all this like fratty friends and they were like pounding shots at some bar in Murray Hill. And I was like, what the fuck is this? So we're just like, we're, we're from two different worlds. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a lot of like comedy be mine there of like the blending of these two very different people trying to like come together. Uh, so that was fun. That was a, it was fun learning that we can write together and, you know, begging our friends to help us shoot this web series for no money and it came out pretty good. Did you have to like, uh, pitch somebody at UCB to do it? No, we actually just went and shot that on our own and just self-funded it. And, uh, I think actually what we had written... Uh, the initial pilot episode, the one where we're, you know, the meet the friends episode, basically, we had entered a like script writing competition that was happening at UCB and our script won. So then we were, that was enough reassurance to be like, oh, this isn't just like a project in narcissism. Like other people find (laughs) this interesting and funny too. Great. Okay. Maybe we have something here. And we wrote six episodes and just shot them ourselves and, you know, got friends from the community to help us do it. Everyone did it, you know, pro bono and which is amazing um and um then yeah so we had that and we're happy how it came together i think eventually pitched it to ucb comedy and they just sort of released it on their on their site 
what's it like working with like a significant other in the writing process? It's both great. It's like it's great because it's the person you're most comfortable with and you trust the most. And but also it's it's like having a writing partner you can fight with really easily. Right. And so it's. I mean, I've I don't I know other people who have you know platonic writing partners. I think they also fight. It can be like a tricky love hate relationship sometimes. But it's been it's kind of great, I guess, because you can be very honest with each other. You can do it in the comfort of your own home. You don't have to put pants on, which is always nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I I find that our writing styles complement one another really well. Um, so that's been nice, and it just makes sense because we both do the same thing. We're like talking about this stuff all the time. It sort of was just born out of like con- you know conversation. So. Uh, yeah, for the most part, it's been pretty good. Would, would you, like, work directly together, or would you, like, work separately and then come together? Or? Yeah, I can't, like, type and have someone look over my shoulder. That, to yeah. me, is, like, my worst nightmare. So what we would usually do is sort of, we would just kind of talk it out, you know, sort of beat out a really rough outline for each episode and sort of the things we wanted to hit, um, maybe improvise some lines back and forth. And then one of us would take a pass and then hand that off to the other person who would take a pass and then, you know, kind of pass it back and forth and, you know, make sure our characters were in our actual voices. Cause we're just writing versions of ourselves. Um, so yeah, we would, cause I, I can't just sit in a room and type next to someone that right. that's like the, that sounds awful. Um, but yeah, so we would kind of like outline together and then go write on our own. Did you ever uh, think to like uh, do something like bigger with this to do like anything else with it? Well, yeah, actually, we so the web series was actually optioned by oh. a uh, by a production company out here. We were still living in New York at the at the time, and then um, optioned by WB Studios. And the idea with that was they would pair, you know. We'd pair up with like a showrunner, who had someone who like actually knew what they were doing in the TV world, and we put together a pitch and go pitch it um, probably to like n- networks. And that was our first real like Hollywood experience, um, where we were so excited because we were like, "Oh my god, this could actually turn into something bigger!" And it was sort of like it was it was like our baby. It was like our one egg in a basket. Um, that this was what we had. This was we'd spent so much time and money into making it and. And then it was like the worst experience. It was just, it was complicated by the fact that we live in New York. So we kept having to fly out here on our own dime to like meet with potential showrunners and we'd like pick someone and they'd be great. And we'd start like developing ideas for the pitch and then the studio would shoot them down or they'd decide to go develop on another project. And so we spent like a whole summer of like finding and losing showrunners for various reasons. And finally we like settled on someone and then, like, he couldn't take the... De- it was just... It just, like, fell apart spectacularly in a way that I think is really... Now we know is really typical of, like, develop- the development process. It was, like, mm-hmm. not a unique story at all. But for us, we were just, like, devastated because we were like, oh, a production company is interested? That means this will be a TV show. Like, that. Right. this is how it works. And so it was a really good lesson in just how things work. Um and also that we need to be out here because part of the part of what made it such a like tumultuous experience was all the like flying back and forth and spending your own money and it was just it made it a lot harder so that that helped us decide to eventually move out here because we're like well the people who buy stuff seem to mostly be out here mm-hmm. um 
But so that was it was a good learning experience. But I remember like getting the news. I was actually at a mod rehearsal and I got the news that like our final showrunner had just like the deal had fallen apart and that was gone and it was like October and pitching season was over and it basically meant like the whole thing was dead and we weren't even going to get we didn't even get to pitch this thing yeah. like we never even got a chance to pitch it which yeah. was so frustrating and I just like got in the call and I was just so drained and devastated and I couldn't stop crying I was like in mod rehearsal that I literally was like I'm sorry I have to leave I was in midtown Manhattan I just like walked all the way home to Brooklyn and just like was just feeling so sorry for myself and like crossing the Brooklyn Bridge and just feeling like, well, that's it. My career's over. Um, it was a real, a real, uh, it was like I was in a movie version of self-pity. It was really over the top, but it was, it was a good, uh, that's the biz, you know, it was <laughs> real. This is how things can go. How do you like pick yourself up from that? Do you like... I don't know, do you just do more UCB stuff? Yeah, I don't know. You just move on. I was really bummed for a really long time. I mean, that was that was probably, like, one of the biggest disappointments. Um, and, that, and a lot of it just came from being naive and not knowing how anything works um, and not understanding how normal it is that that fell apart. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I don't know. I just took it. We, you know, eventually internalized it as a learning experience. Now we know, like, take everything with a grain of salt. You know, don't don't put all your eggs in one basket. Because all the showrunners we were talking to had, like, 12 things in development. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Right. Yeah, because the chances of something get getting even just a pilot script ordered are tiny. So, um, yeah, you just keep making stuff. You just keep... You just move on. Eventually, you have to, like, let it roll off your back. And I do think it helped, like, thicken my skin a little bit. Yeah. When you're meeting with these showrunners, are you just, like, are you talking about, like, developing the whole series or just, like, really just working on getting a pitch down? Yeah, because part of the pitch is being able to, you want to be able to pitch, like, have the people buying it understand what the season like what season one would look like i mean obviously they want to know what the pilot would look like and they also need to understand what like the whole world of the show would look like what a season arc would look like and they need to be able to picture that this thing can go on and on for a while so you really are ultimately pitching a whole series like ideally from what you know watching or reading a pilot you can sort of picture in your mind like oh i can see where this would go um so when meeting with these showrunners, we would try to, you know, what we would want to hear from them is that they like our idea, that they don't want to, like, completely change it, but also they have things to bring to the table and, you know, they have a clear point of view of where the show could go. And um, obviously all these very talented, every like, every writer we met with was great, except there was one guy who I'm pretty sure was on coke so he was not great um which was also a good um entrance to hollywood where i was like scaramucci? Oh. yeah it was anthony scaramucci it was crazy he's producing some movie i think is he really i, think I heard yeah I can't of remember. course he is yeah Ugh, he's gonna be fine isn't he it's <laughs> the worst um yeah it was uh he was yeah it was a great learning experience it's all i mean that was really the all we walked away from it <laughs> so did you get like super far into like did you have like a something that like, you could theoretically have pitched yeah i mean we did actually that is something we had this pitch document that just got worked and reworked mm-hmm. and reworked so it was even though we didn't get to actually go out and take it and pitch it out um it did i think help us 
learn how to formulate a pitch um, and rework it and rework it and and getting to like pick the brains of all of these experienced showrunners who would give us notes and all, that was really invaluable. Um, and so we did eventually pitch a version of that show a few years a few years later, just to some production companies, Don and I, um, like a more like grown up version once we'd eventually like gotten married. Um, and, uh, which didn't sell, but it's still, I feel like we were able to go in and like confidently give a pitch that wasn't just like two babbling idiots, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was helpful. I feel better about it. Just talking about it. I'm like, (laughs) I learned so much from that horrible rejection. (laughs) Uh, and you, you wrote a book, uh, which came out in yes. January. I am, yes. I am bride. Yes. Uh, what was like the gen- genesis of the book? Um, well, planning my own wedding. Um, so the I am bride. It's it's a parody of a wedding guidebook. So it's it reads as if it's written from the point of view of like a psychopathic wedding planner, basically, whose whose whole mantra is like this is your big day and nothing's more important than your wedding. And, you know, you're allowed to treat everyone like you're a dictator and that's okay. Um, and it's just sort of making fun of the insane wedding industry and how crazy brides, like it's totally normal that women turn into these like psychopaths because they're planning a wedding and everyone's supposed to just put up with it and be okay with it. And also like just as I got engaged and started planning my own wedding, which is I just was introduced to this world of wedding planning, which is, it's really the craziest world and it's the craziest industry. And, um, I totally started to buy into it. So I, I'd find myself getting like so worked up over like which florist to hire when it's like, we're paying someone thousands of dollars to provide us with plants that are in the process of dying. So that's so stupid. Um, and I'm getting emotional about it, which is even stupider. So I started writing, um, sort of satirical essays, almost like for myself, like as a catharsis to remind myself how stupid this whole thing is. And, um, I submitted one to the hairpin, I think. And, um, that did pretty well. And I think someone from Jezebel reached out to me cause they were starting a like wedding themed vertical. So I write, started writing more essays in that vein for them. And I, and I, I just, the idea sort of spawned from there where I was like, Oh, maybe I could write a whole book sort of, you know, satirizing this crazy industry. And so, yeah, kind of went from there. Uh, once you know, you want to do a book, what's your like uh, plan of action to like uh, pitch and whatnot? Well, it was, my way of going about it was interesting because I had, it was a former manager, the manager I was working with at the time pitched the idea to a couple, I think literary agents who all were like, we like the idea, but it's tough to sell wedding books. Uh, so we don't think this is an idea that a publisher would buy. So didn't, I was like, okay, bummer. Um, and I have a friend who works at Abrams in the YA department and I'd mentioned the idea to her and she really liked it. So she just forwarded it along to their humor editor who loved the idea and pitched it to her bosses and they bought the idea. It was like, oh, wow. it was absurd. It, it, it came together so quickly. And I think this was like pretty shortly after that whole WB thing had fallen apart that I, so I was like, I almost like didn't believe it. I didn't trust it because it just like came to, I keep hitting this thing. I, it came together relatively easy where I was like, what's, when's the 
like floor going to fall out from under me. <laughs> um, so I got very lucky in that regard that I didn't have to like pitch it around, which I, I don't think that's common. Um, but uh, so yeah, it was, it was a very, it was like really fun to get to write. Um, and marketing a book sucks. Yeah. That's the part that I really hated. Um, and that falls a lot to the author, which I have other friends who've published books and they all kind of say the same thing. Ja- Jamie Lee came out with a, a book that it's around the same time while she wrote while she was planning her wedding that kind of parodies wedding culture and is also a little bit more first person where she writes about planning her own book. And we both were talking about how like it just falls to the author to like market their book and you know the publisher does very little if nothing um mm-hmm. so that's that was interesting to find out and stuff yeah, yeah. uh what, what was it like working with an editor i got i really liked my editor and so i it was we had very similar comedic tastes so i her notes were never insane and i i had a like really pleasant experience working with her she was really great um yeah, I I don't know if that's everyone's experience, but I we luckily like very had very similar tastes, so it was it was a good experience because she her notes are almost always like oh yeah no that's a really good point that makes it all much clearer very and also if I really didn't agree with a note she almost always would be like okay yeah that's fine yeah. like it was it was a very it was a very great relationship yeah uh, how much did the the book change from like draft to draft. If that, if that much at all? Not massively. Probably the biggest change was that I wrote the whole thing. I kind of just broke it up into chapters at one hand in like one chapter at a time. And so I'd done that and kind of thought the book was done. And they finally like laid it out with all like illustrations and stuff like that. And we're like, okay, it's like 20 pages too short. So we need to, you need to like write a bunch more. So that was probably the biggest thing where I was like, Oh shit, I have to go back. What am I? Okay. I have to like find things to talk about. So that was probably one of the bigger things that had to be done, but it it turned out fine. Would you, would you like add more to what you've already written or would you like try to think of like a new, I would come up with new sections. So it was the, it was broken down into like, here are the steps you have to follow to plan your wedding was sort of how the book is organized. So I would just, you know, I, I think one of the new sections I added was a whole section about like working out and shaping your body to get it fried ready. And, you know, um, yeah. Uh, and, and like you said, it's written in the voice of the wedding planner. Mm-hmm. Was that like a difficult thing to keep up like that satirical voice? No, actually that made it so much easier. It made it so yeah. much easier. And I think again, it was like tapping into my sort of, it allowed me to use my improv and sketch background to write mm. this book. Um, because my character, the the character I'm writing from has a very clear point of view. So you pretty much know what she's going to say about almost any subject, you know? So it, it, it really made it much, much easier. Cause I'm like, I, I know exactly how she'd feel about flowers. She thinks they're the most important thing. Um, because without flowers, your wedding is basically a barbecue. And I know that she thinks $15,000 is a reasonable price to spend on flowers. It just made it much easier. Oh, that's true. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to somebody writing a satirical book? I mean, I think, I think if you find it funny and if it's fun, like for me, this was a very cathartic thing to 
write a satirical book about weddings. I wrote it while I was still planning my wedding. So it was just interesting to me. It was a world I was like delighting in making fun of, um, felt relevant to me. Um, and so, yeah, it just came from a place of like, I really want to write this book. And so it was, and I want to make fun of all these things. And so it was, and I have, like, I have something to say here basically. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that just made it much easier to write. I mean, that, that's really just you have to write something i mean across the board if you're writing anything it should be something you're really passionate about unless someone's paying you a lot of money to write branded content about toothpaste in which case you just suck it up and force the words out of your fingertips um but yeah i mean and i've not written it's not like a narrative book i haven't written a novel that's a whole other beast i don't know anything about that that seems very hard that seems really difficult um but at least for a book like mine, which is more, you know, like a gifty, hmm. just straight up humor book, it was fun. Would you ever want to write another book? I would. And I would want to write another book and I would want to pay someone else to market it for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the part I really hate. <laughs> it's just, you know, be, like posting about it on social media and mm. trying to get your famous friends to take a picture of it for Instagram. It's like excruciating to ask yeah. people that, that sucks, but you also like have to do it and it's something people do. And, you know, I want I, if I went through all the trouble of writing it, I felt like I need to like do what I can to make sure people know that it exists and, but it's not an, it's not something I'm good at necessarily or really know what I'm doing or I don't really feel comfortable because it feels, it's just feels very self-promoting, which is uncomfortable and, um, it's tough. But I think, I mean, almost everyone I know who's written a book has, you know, felt the same way. Mm. I think it's something I wish I had known going into it. Like I kind of thought the publishers would just take it and promote it like crazy for me. And like, if you're Amy Schumer, I think then that's how it works. Yeah. Then you have p- tons of free publicity. But if you're not Amy Schumer, that's on you mm. to do it. So um, I would love to, I loved the process of writing it though. It was like a very satisfying, it was like one of the most satisfying things I've done creatively because it was all mine. It was very much my voice. It was, yeah, it was really fun to write. It's, I, I had uh, Nate Dern on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's got a book coming yes. out. Um, and, yeah, he said kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, I never thought about that, but, like, in film and TV, that's, you know, from your brain to the, to the like, screen. That's yeah. That's like a lot of people going through yes. a lot of stuff. Yeah. But uh, the book is just, like, it's, it's all pre- you. Right. It's, like, goes through, like, an editor, mm-hmm. but... She doesn't change it that much, right? You don't have, like, a studio spending millions of dollars being like, you got to change this. So, yeah, it felt, yeah, creatively, it's very, it was really satisfying and fun. I felt, like, ownership over it Mm. um, in a way that I, you don't always get with TV and film stuff. So that was really nice. Uh, And now you're currently working on the Jim Jeffrey show. Yeah. How did you get that gig? I just submitted a packet. It was probably packet number... 50 that I've done. So, um, yeah, it, uh, that was just, it felt like a tiny miracle. It happened when I got, <laughs> I got hired. I was like, what? Uh, I thought I would just write these packets and send them off and never hear anything. I thought that's how it worked. Um, so yeah, I've been very lucky to get that job and it's been, it's my first like true staff writing position. Um, I just gave WGA a lot of my money, which mm-hmm. felt good and terrible at the same time. Um, but, 
yeah, it's been it's been great. What what was uh, like in your packet? It was like monologue jokes. Yeah, I think it was two two monologue sort of ranty monologues because um, Jim's he's right. a stand up. He's not like a news guy. He's like a stand up who um, like has strong opinions about everything. So they I think they were saying like write one that's really just totally from your point of view, just so we get a sense of you. And then the second one, try to write it in Jim's voice as much as you can. And I think um, uh, they wanted some pitches on field pe- potential field pieces. So I think I think that was it. And you, you said you did write in in Jim's voice. Yeah. What, what would you describe as his voice? Jim's like he will. He's not afraid to offend, and he will he will say the thing that people think, but won't say out loud. And um, but it's also it's funny because I think people didn't realize he was liberal. Like he is a liberal guy, yeah. but he'll like make the subversive joke um he's yeah he's just not afraid of like a subversive humor um he's funny as hell i mean he just like he especially when you put him in front of an audience i mean he just like comes alive like he is hysterical he's just hit him he's a massive following like all over the world which i didn't realize how big of a following he had i had no idea um yeah, it's been interesting to have to learn to write in in someone else's point of view and in someone else's voice. I mean, that's a big part of the job, um, and that's been. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know like what terms to describe it. It's just he has like a very uniquely like gym style. Like he's direct. He is not super PC, but he's also always coming from like a good place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's I. Th- what we're hoping is this show has, you know, like the daily show, obviously everyone in the writer's room is super liberal. Like we're all very, very liberal, but we're hoping the show can like, we just did an episode where we really, the one we shot today, actually, like we make fun of the democratic party and how like weak their slogans are and how their like messaging is all over the place. Like we want this to be a show that can like kind of punch both sides a little bit. Cause the Democrats aren't perfect either. Um, so yeah, our hope is that the the show can like have a broad reach. Uh, what's your uh, what's your schedule like for a weekly show? It's much more man. It made me realize doing a daily show would be very right. hard. <laughs> um, it's been very. The hours aren't crazy. We base we we tape on Tuesdays. We have to because we're on the West Coast. We we tape the day that we air, so we have to tape at like one. Um, so that means like. You know, Wednesday is like pitching day where we try to hammer out what we're going to do for the episode. It's like semi-topical because it's weekly. Um, so maybe like one act is a little bit more of an evergreen subject and we try to have act one be a little bit more topical. Um, Thursday and Friday are the big writing days. Um, the way it works is we kind of like brainstorm everything as a room, have an idea of what we're writing and what the beats are going to be. Um, then we kind of go off and write our own scripts, submit those to the head writer, and he sort of cherry picks stuff from all of our scripts into one, you know, master script. And then we'll just beat beat it, punch it up, add jokes as a room. Jim adds jokes and puts things in his voice, and um, we kind of just do that 
over and over again, like Friday and Monday are all about just like punching up uh, it, when breaking news happens, which keeps happening because <laughs> of the time we live in, you know, something will break on like Monday and we'll try to work it in. Um, or we've had to change things on like Tuesday morning. Um, that always happens, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty, it's fast paced and it's like, it keeps you busy. It's like, doesn't really slow down now that we're in production, but it's also the hours aren't insane. So that I'm very happy about that. <laughs> so, uh, today we're recording this on Tuesday. Yes. Tomorrow's pitch day. Yeah. Do you have like your ideas kind of ready for tomorrow? Yeah. We, we've talked about some stuff because we end, you know, we wrap up shooting at two or three. So we'll start kind of talking about ideas, you know, kind of casually on Tuesday afterward. And then, tomorrow will come in and sort of cement them more but mm. yeah i feel like we're always constantly pitching throughout the week like mm. we have we're on slack which is this like messaging service where people can like up you know post articles so you're kind of like always pitching ideas so that when wednesday comes around it's not like okay guys what do we have it's at by that point we already know like oh here's a few things we've been sort of throwing around let's narrow it down to like two or three things see what jim's interested in talking about um and take it from there and you you came on this show before it premiered, so yeah. like uh, when you from you when you first got into the room to like when the show is now coming out, yeah. Uh, did the show like was there like forming were you like, as the writers like kind of forming what the show would be? Yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, I feel like we're still figuring it out. I feel like we we figured it out a lot more, but it uh, you know that was definitely. You know, how is this show going to be different from the other shows like it? Um, you know, how do we also use what, you know, take what Jim is really good at, which is stand-up. He's an incredible stand-up. And how do we make sure that he can do what he's best at, which is being a really, really funny stand-up and put it into this format? And I think that was a learning curve for him, too, to, like, sit at a desk and read a teleprompter. That's not what he's used to. He's used to being able to, like, stand with a mic and say, like, he doesn't, he writes on stage like he just writes in his head he doesn't sit at a computer and write a script usually so um i think figuring out like how our show is going to feel different from all the other ones was is something that i feel like now we're getting a handle on but it took us many episodes to get there as we as we knew it would um but yeah i feel like our first few episodes felt a lot more like a samantha b or john oliver but with jim saying the jokes and now our pieces, now I feel like the episodes feel more like this is Jim Jeffrey's show. So mm-hmm. that that's what we're always working towards. Uh, so like we said before, we live in a crazy political time. Mm-hmm. How, how do you write like political comedy for like now? Um, there's a lot of depression in the room. I mean, we are constantly <laughs> like, oh my God. Uh, I mean, the upside is there's never a slow news day. Um it's almost like, and also things happen so fast that the craziest thing, you know, like Donald Trump Jr. will post emails where he basically admits he's colluding with Russia, right. but that's happening on a Wednesday. So we're like, you know what? By Tuesday, this is going to be ancient news because probably eight other things will break between now and then. So, you know, we're, well, maybe we'll touch on this, but we're not going to do a whole piece on it. Like there's a lot of those discussions where like, this is the craziest thing ever. We're not going to talk about it because it'll be done to death, you know, four days from now when we go to air. Um, But yeah, it is. I mean, I've heard about this in other rooms, too. Like, it's just it is like 
it's a it can feel like heavy sometimes having to be really uber aware of the news i i've had you you have to fight this instinct sometimes of being like i wish i could just look away and be ignorant of what's going on you know but you can't be um because you have to know what's going on um i was actually writing for the pilot of this show during the election so you know we left work like we originally taped the pilot december 5th of last year so we started writing it or brainstorming it before the election happened and we i remember we were like well we won't even mention trump because he'll be you know hillary will be president and he'll be ancient history by the time we tape so and then the election happened we all came in the next day and we're just as devastated as everyone else was and we're just like i I remember the biggest thing that i was just like oh my god we have to talk about trump and we have to talk about trump constantly for the next four like at least four years like that to me was just like oh god like he's He's going to be a huge part of it. I was so excited to be rid of him. Um, so, yeah, it's like, uh, it's, I don't know, maybe I've got, grown a little numb to it or something, but <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm happy that I know what's going on. I think everyone's become a lot more politically active these days than they used to be. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of like, like on the weekends, I try really hard not to look at the news. I try to like give myself a break and just not read stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, I like catch up on Monday, so I read it anyway eventually. But I try to like give myself two days off where I'm not reading anything that'll upset me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would you like to be doing next? Um, I, you know, we're, we just got ten more episodes, so that's exciting. Nice. Um, you know, it'd be fun to get to do this for a while, and I also would love to. Uh, work on like a scripted narrative show someday. I'd really love to do that. Um, so that's always been a passion of mine. Um, but honestly, I'm, it's been kind of fun to see just where things go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we're going to wrap up with you giving your thoughts on something I wrote. Okay, this great. A, this is a sketch pitch. Yes. I wrote, there's so much words here, I'm not going <laughs> to read all these words. Um <laughs> All right, I'll just read the first one because it's kind of funny. So there's the Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire. Uh Uh-huh. And there's kind of a joke that people are saying, well, they should update that song for today. Uh Uh-huh. So I've got two pitches for a sketch like that. Right. Basically, the first one would be like someone would come out as Billy Joel Mm -hmm. saying he updated the song. (laughs) And it would start off, they'd be like, Ken, Bone, Scar, you know, all that stuff. Uh, But then it would just quickly become about stuff that happened in Billy Joel's life. <laughs> and so he just, but it's like very like boring stuff. Like it would start off with like Matt, you know, the Madison Square Garden residency, yeah. but then it'd just be like, he went to like a good Mexican restaurant <laughs> and caught up on breaking bad or something. So that's yeah. the first pitch. Great. The second pitch, it's very similar. It's just a normal guy. Yeah. Because he's updated it. And then it just turns into really sad details about his life. I always like sad. Yeah. Yeah, I always tend to go sad. Yeah. My favorite humor is sad humor. Because I think like tragedy and comedy are basically the same thing. Right. But if any, I love things that are so painfully sad that they're funny. Um, it's actually, my husband did a Billy Joel sketch show at, oh, at, really? with, with Drew Johnson, a friend of who I mentioned I wrote on yeah. Algorithm with. The two of them, it was called Sketches from an Italian Restaurant, a Billy Joel themed uh, sketch okay. show. Um, and they did a We, start, we oh, Didn't Start no. the Fire sketch that was basically, but they kind of were just saying the word fire over and over. It was like, cease fire, gun fire. Like it was <laughs> uh, a little bit more absurdist way to That's kick fine. off the show. But yeah, so they, 
if you ever want to just see some Billy Joel themed sketches, that's the show to do it. Oh, I think okay. it's online somewhere. Oh, okay. I'll, yeah. I'll look it up. Um, but yeah, I always like sad. Yeah. That to me like gives it a like stronger point of view right. or like then you understand like why he's writing the song mm-hmm. and it'll be like so much easier to come up with ah, stuff, you know? Yeah. Rather than just I feel like the first pitch I don't know, lacks a like motivation maybe. Yeah. Whereas this one where it's like he just really needs to talk about his stuff, but all all anyone wants to hear from Billy Joel is Billy Joel's songs, but he's mm-hmm. like no, I need to like talk about some shit and you my audience at Madison Square Garden are the only people I have so I'm going to pretend I'm singing a song but then start like getting into the dark stuff going on in my life disguised yeah. as a song that to me is fun okay cool yeah alright uh, thanks for coming out anything you Thank- want to plug uh, the Jim Jeffers show 1030 on Comedy Central there you go for hopefully a really long time <laughs> <laughs> I am Bride I am bride. Oh, yeah, yeah, thank you. See how good I am at, at uh, marketing my own book? I forgot to mention it. Yeah, I, it's I am bride. If you know anyone planning a wedding, it's a great gift um, to help them maintain some perspective and hopefully laugh, have a laugh. Um, and you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, basically wherever books are sold, you can buy it. All right, thanks for that. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.